I'm excited to dive into the word, but I've got to make a confession um, to you, and, and it's a, a ne- like a negative confession. Like, uh, I'm not a germ- germaphobe. I'm, I'm like, so you thought I was going to say something really like depressing. I'm not a germaphobe. I'm not a germaphobe. And I, I know that's like what a germaphobe says before they're about to say some things that make them sound like a germaphobe. But I'm really not a germaphobe. In fact, I think we're all just a little bit of a germ- germaphobe, particularly when it comes to public bathrooms. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, we're all a little bit of a germaphobe, and should be. Um, particularly, like, the other day, uh, this weekend, we were in a restaurant, and um, my son uh, Beckett, he, he's four, he, he has no spatial, like, recognition. You probably know this about a, a, a child, if you've ever been in the home with a child. They'll just show up, and they'll, like, be right in your face. And then, like, they don't have spatial recognition or understand where they're at. Particularly, like, in public bathrooms, like, we're, we're using the urinals right next to each other. And he, like, puts his hand on the urinal, like, the peeing part. And he's like, Dad, you want to use this one? I'm going to use this one. And I'm just, like, I'm, like, literally, like, convulsing and shaking at how grossed out I am in that moment. Um, but I think we're all a little bit like that. And he doesn't have the spatial recognition. Um, but, you, you know, I think we all have, like, similar moves when it comes to the public bathroom. Right? Some of us look like Catherine Zeta-Jones in Entrapment. You guys remember that movie where she's working through the lasers? Like, that's how we work through, or we look like Bruce Lee, or, you know, we bust in the door. We're like SWAT team. Like, we kick the door open. We're like, I'm not touching anything. I bomb my foot. I kick it. Kick it open. We're going to try the, try the stall, see if anybody's in there. We just kick it open. <laughs> I think we've all got little moves, you know, like we're going to do the same thing. We've got a good kick, like a good downward kick for the, the, the toilet. We're not going to touch it, Right? Um, I don't know why they don't do this. They should, they should sell, like in the travel section, little personal toilet bowl cleaners because I think that all women would carry them around in their purses. Like you just clean the toilet, sanitize it, you know, put the paper down, sit on, do the whole thing. I think that would really sell. So if anybody wants to run with that idea, feel free. I'm not going to invest, but you can feel free. Uh, I think we all have these similar moves. You know, you get to the, the sink and you, you work the elbow. You turn the sink on with your elbow you know, get to the paper towel, and you karate chop the paper towel, and then I think you moonwalk it back out the door, just like you kicked it open, you kind of moonwalk back out. I think we all have these similar moves, but what's crazy to me, uh, and what I, I realize about the public bathroom, is many times this is how we as Christians walk through the world. We walk through the world just like ready to karate chop something, and like work through, and we've got all these moves, all while clean, and like we're afraid to touch anything that it might make us dirty. And I think, there's, I think there's a positive kind of sense to this, but I think there's some real misunderstandings we have to the life that Jesus calls us to, the people he's called us to, um, and the love that he's given us and compelled us by. So I really want to explore that because many of us as Christians, we would claim to be uh, what Jesus says in his first big sermon, Sermon on the Mount. We'd claim to be salt and light, but the salt is still in the container and it's still on the second shelf in the cupboard. It never comes out. It never hits the food. Or we claim to be light, but it always stays locked behind the door. And, and, and what God's calling us to is a light that would shine like a city on a hill, salt that would indeed impact the world in which we live in and preserve and keep it. And so I'm looking forward to diving into the text with you. We're going to be going to Luke chapter 10 today. And uh, really, last week, if you were with us, we, we were in Matthew chapter 22, and, and we come up on what is best described, I feel like I, I described it last week, as like a, a yo mama joke setting uh, because it's an honor shame society and like as we would kind of uh, picture like the yo mama jokes and like whoever comes up with the best comeback wins and saves face and basically that's the kind of society that, that Jesus lived in because it was an honor shame society and so when people are asking him questions when, whenever you see an expert in the law or a Pharisee or a Sadducee 
asking Jesus questions, what they're attempting to do is undermine his honor and authority. It's really not about whatever they're asking. It's really about his authority, and they're always trying to undermine Jesus' authority. So that's always there. And so we looked at Matthew chapter 22, and, and the question they brought to him is, Teacher, what's the greatest commandment? What's the greatest commandment? This is from the Matthew text. And, and Jesus says, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, you know, soul, and strength. Like, he, he, miss, he, he doesn't add strength. That, that's from the Deuteronomy 6 text of which Jesus is pulling this. And it's a Jewish prayer. It's called the Shema. It's the daily prayer that they would pray. So Jesus begins to quote this to them. And it's the first prayer that a Jewish child would learn. And so Jesus goes on and, and, and he says that this is the first and the greatest commandment. And he said the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Like we teach that to our kids in elementary school, whether we're Christians or not. But it has a biblical um, meaning and it's where it comes from is the, uh, the mouth of Jesus here uh, compelling us as Christians to live this out. And so we're actually going to move to Luke that, um, and, and Jesus goes on to, on to say, you know, all the law and prophets hang on these two. We're going to move to Luke and uh, look today, and, and the same phrase comes up, but this time it happens in a different scenario. It's actually not Jesus who makes the confession uh, of, of these, these same texts and the same prayer, but it, it's actually an expert in the law that's trying to trick him again, and so we'll dive into the text, and what we're going to realize is that this is a very familiar text to us once we, we get in, but I hope I can shed new light on it, and more than anything, the practical application of the life that God's calling us to live, the love that he's compelled and put inside of us, and then really about these people that are all in our paths that God wants us to connect to, to go and tell. Uh, on one occasion, the expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So the question's different, but again, it's not even so much about the question. It's just a launching point for Jesus to begin to teach this guy. Uh, what is written in the law? Jesus replied to him. This time he didn't drop the answer. He turns the question back on you. Does Jesus ever do that to you? I feel like sometimes he does that to me, and it's quite powerful. And he says, how do you read it? He's asking this expert in the law. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Love your neighbor as, as yourself. I think it's important for us to understand where in the Matthew text, it's much later in Jesus's ministry. Here, it's actually at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry, just to get an idea of how big the church is. The, the church, Jesus had sent out the 12 disciples earlier in his ministry. We're in Luke chapter 10, and Jesus is now sending out the 72 disciples. So they had multiplied a few times, basically from 12, and now he's sending out 72. So it's always just mind-boggling to think about how small the church started and just how faithful those people were to live out their call. So never, never be um, afraid of what God can do through a faithful few and so Jesus responds to him after he nails the answer. You've answered correctly. It reminds me of the Chris Rock sketch where he talked about you raise your kids like what you want a cookie. Um, you guys don't know anything about that, I'm sure. Um, you've answered correctly. Like, great. I'm glad you got an answer. Now do it. Now do it and, and you'll live. And I think this is a big thing for us in the Christian world that we live in now. We are consumers to our deepest core. We are consumers. Even as much as, I think in the heart of hearts, we would not have this, and like in the purity of our love for God, we would not have this. Even on a Sunday, we come to consume. Do we not? Like we come to be fed of the word, and we come to, it's, it, we're, we're so driven, and if we look into the scriptures, it was not about us coming to get, it was about us coming to give and to offer. I mean, coming from a, a way of sacrifices, and so many times we approach God, about all about what we can get. We are so consumer-driven. And Jesus is like, hey, I'm glad you got the answer, 
but can you do it? Can you live that? If you want to know life, you want to know it to the fullest, you want to know abundance, then it's not just knowing, like, congrats, man, what do you want a cookie? You got to go do it. And I think this is the heart of what Jesus is trying to communicate, not just to our community, but to, to, to the global church, is go live out my commands. Go do it. Like, quit talking about it. Quit just sitting there. Go live it out. And so that's what we're going to do next week. And, and really, it's not about that, that event here for good, but it's really about mobilizing our minds and bodies to live missionally. So let's continue from here. The guy's, the guy's not done. This is one of those things, like, you should have quit while you were ahead. Um, with Jesus, he gives him the answer, go and do this. But he's like, he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to make sure and show Jesus, like, no, I'm righteous, man. Who's my neighbor? I'm going to do it. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And, and so we're going to begin to get in this. Jesus is going to begin to tell the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Most every, everyone's heard this and can, you know, probably kind of quote it. But I think it's important for us to kind of understand this in our thing, because Jesus is going to really talk about who, who the neighbor is. But just as we're going through this, I think it's easy to think about it in kind of three layers, kind of the closest place to home, meaning home, is your closest neighbor, the person that lives in the bedroom um, with you or next to you, or maybe your actual neighbor. Like, we live in societies where we rarely know our neighbors. We rarely have dinner with our neighbors. Uh, we, we don't know their kids' names. We, we don't know what they do for a living. We just know they're kind of always gone or, you know, and we, we have trouble with this. And so literally, I would say that's kind of first base is, is our home and our, our, our immediate neighbors. And I think the second kind of place is our work. Like that's kind of our second neighbor. That's probably the other place where we spend the most time is like actual kind of work life. And then I, I think the third place would be kind of everywhere else, like the, the marketplace where we'd just be out and about publics you know, driving down the road. So we can kind of think about it in these kind of three places in our life, and it kind of helps to organize this idea of neighbors. Um, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down. So first he responds with a question, um, and, then, and then a response, and then he, this time he's going to go into the story because this guy's not getting it. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. I have to tell you a story before we move on. When I was like uh, 17, possibly 18 years old, my parents had just moved outside of the city center, and we were just a little bit out in the country, just like five or ten minutes outside. It's the most I've ever lived in the country. We were kind of home alone on a Friday night. Uh, again, I was 17 or 18 years old. Parents were out, just a couple of my friends over, and I get this knock at our door. Um, and it's, it's this guy that I don't know. I can kind of see. We have one of those went doors you kind of see through. I kind of see, I don't know this guy. But I wasn't really worried about anything, not really thinking. I opened the door just to see what he wants, um, and he's bloodied. Like, his face is beat up. He looks, I mean, bro looks rough. His shirt is torn and filthy. Um, he, he speaks no English. He speaks Spanish only and, and uh, came from, like, a, a migrant area. And um, he speaks Spanish only. I'm trying to understand what he's saying, but my Spanglish is really bad. And, like, I'm, try, I'm learning Spanish at the time, but I'm no good at it trying to understand, and I begin to understand that he's been robbed, like literally been robbed from his car. They stole his car. They beat him half to death. I can see leather marks from where he had been strangled, and he had been, he blacked out in the woods, and he had been left for dead, literally. Like this guy comes, I'm like, whoa, like that's a lot for a 17-year-old. I don't know what to say to this guy. I can barely understand him. Obviously, we call the cops immediately because we know this is 
This is a real deal. This guy, this guy, this had kind of happened. I mean, he had been robbed. Everything had been taken from him. String left literally half dead, blacked out in the middle of the woods. I didn't know what to do other than just to listen to him and try to understand what his story was, um, to call the cops, and then to make a ham and cheese sandwich, which I know makes no sense. But I'm an 18-year-old kid. I don't know, like, you want a sandwich, bro? Like, I don't know what to do for you. And most of the time in our life, like, that doesn't happen to us. But I, I think... It, as we get into the story, what Jesus is really want us to hone, hone into and really understand is, one, is that uh, these, these scenarios happen a lot more than what we think they do. And it's a little more clo- closer to home. And in the, the world that uh, we live in, and I, I think it's really understand for, for, or hard for us to understand sometimes that people are hurting because some of the people... Um, who, who are, are bloodied and who are hurting and who are alone have families and they have great jobs and they wear suits and they have great haircuts and they, they drive a nice car and everything looks good, but like spiritually we are broken and we are empty and we are alone. And so I think in the culture and the suburban life that, that many of us live in right here, it, it's very difficult for us to see that. And what God wants to begin to do is, is to realize that People are all around us in this position. Even if they're not coming up, knocking on your door, it may be the cashier, it may be a, a homeless person on the side of the road, it may be the person that lives in the house with you, and they're just alone, and like, we need to change something in our pattern, and God needs to do something in our heart for us to really realize and, and, and slow down, and that's what we're going to get into right here, because a priest happened to be going down the road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Have you seen one of those videos on the news? I, I saw one of these a, a while back that a person had been hit by a car in New York City. Did you guys see this? Uh, a person had been hit by a car in New York City, literally laying in the middle of the road, and there are hundreds if not thousands of people just walking by, like literally will not stop and slow down to grab a person out of the road or even to say, hey bro, you okay? Like just keep moving and pass by on the other ride. So too, a Levite, so a priest and now a Levite, and remember, we, we talked about those a little bit next week. When he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. Before we go any further, let, let, let's talk a little bit, another thing about their culture. We talked about honor and shame last week. And there's another thing within this culture of cleanliness, that purity is a big deal in this culture. A very big deal. And I think it's probably best described for us when you sweep the kitchen floor. Like, what are we doing when we do that? We, we are organizing the dirt, right? We're, we're moving the dirt from the place that we consider to be clean and that, that should not be dirt. We organize the dirt by putting it into the, the little thing and, uh, and then putting it in the trash. Like, we're organizing that into their culture. They, they, that's really how they saw this, but not just in matters of dirt, but in matters of people. That there were people who were unclean. If they had a disease or if they were at a certain economic status, they were considered unclean. Or if they had a certain history or been committed crimes, like they were considered unclean and dirty. And so there was this ladder. There was this hierarchy of purity and cleanliness. And priests and Levites are at the very top of the purity food chain, if you will. Like, anyone that's dirty, like, they cannot touch those people. They cannot be seen touching those people. If they are touched or encounter these people, they have certain purity regulations that they have to follow through. And what Jesus is beginning to say here is he's going to test their understanding of righteousness and living out this call and, and this love that God's given us. And so here these guys are passing on the other 
side of the road. And the truth of the matter is that we pass by on the other side of the road many times. Sometimes we are those people in New York City. Or sometimes it's just the person at work that just is pouring out their heart about the divorce they're going through or the pain of their relationship or the financials. And we just, we can't slow down. We're just like, I got to pass by on the other side of the road. So sometimes that happens in the office, not just on the other side of the road in a very hardcore uh, manner. And so that, that kind of helps understand. So Jesus is making a statement here. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. We're going to come back and read this. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Then the next day, uh, the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Uh, which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and again, do likewise. I want to ask a question, a few questions, about what motivates us. What, what is inside of us in which we are of the priest and Levite order in which we cross on the other side of the road? And maybe it's not just crossing on the other side of the road. Maybe it's just crossing on the other side of our mind. Like, we have this kind of thing of like, are we going to listen to this or are we not going to listen to this? <laughs> like, if we just think of the side of the road in our brain, like, am I going to listen to this person's complaint? Am I going to have pa- passion, compassion, mercy on them, pity on them? Or am I not going to? So I just kind of think of that as the side of the road and I think that can make it very accessible for us. I want to talk about some fears that I believe of why we cross the road. And I think fear is just a, a powerful emotion in our life and you may not connect with all of them, but I think you'll connect with, with some of them. And I think at the end of it, really understanding what God, what really should be compelling us to, to stay on the same side of the road and stop as the Samaritan does here. I think the first fear is uh, one that, that maybe not too many people in this room might have. Maybe some of you do. It's fear of the appearance. Fear of what onlookers will say. Fear of what others might say about you. I think this is one um, that happens in, in more kind of uh, elite circles or, or, or people well-to-do or, or maybe uh, your career is very just driven and, and you can't slow down and you know, don't want to be seen in certain circumstances. I, uh, there was a, an ESPN reporter this week. Some of you may have heard about her. Her name is Britt McHenry. Um, and, and I'm not throwing her you know, uh, in, in the fire or anything like that. But uh, uh, she, she was really kind of ugly to a person that was just doing her job. Uh, and really nasty, and I think some of it, and, and she kind of pulls this line, lady, don't you know I'm in the news, like after her car got towed, and like she was just nasty, this, like just berating this woman for doing her job, just running her down, everything about her. I think sometimes this whole uh, appearance thing of what it looks like on the outside, again, uh, can, can make a difference. Here she had a gr- great opportunity to just be nice to the person, see if they can help them here, but I, I think we're driven a lot of times by what other people will say. And from our elite circles and slowing down. And, and I think part of this comes from some misunderstanding, some misuse of some scriptures. I think one is First Thessalonians 5, 22, where we talk about fleeing from the appearance of evil. I mean, like, we could, we could totally justify what these guys are doing, right? Like, okay, they're just doing what the law compels them to do. They're just kind of living that out. Like, we could justify that, but I think we have to look at it with what Jesus is speaking here. Like, which one had mercy on them? Which one was righteous? Which one did it? 
And, and it wasn't the, the ones who had the position. It wasn't the ones um, who were holy in everybody else's eyes. It was the one who was actually despised. It was the one that had, uh, we'll, we'll talk about more of that here in a second. And I think we also misuse John 17. And uh, so one, one extreme is like, we'll have nothing to do with anything in the world, and we're just kind of working through the world like the bathroom kind of dance that we were talking about in the you know, SWAT team. So we work through that, and the other side is that we're, we, we kind of claim in but not of the world, and we look so much like everyone that's broken, like we're not healed, like we don't have peace, and like how can we pass that on? So we kind of don't really understand this in but not of the world kind of chapter that John talks about. And this other side, we're so afraid of kind of the appearance and of evil that we won't do what God's called us to do. So I think that's the first fear. I doubt too many of you have that, but I certainly think that's at play in us misunderstanding some of those scriptures. I think the other one is the fear of the unknown. Fear of the unknown. I think this really has to do with us and what am I going to say? What am I going to do? Uh, Jesus' disciples felt this too, and he like kind of prepared them for it. He was like, hey, look, when you go out, they're not going to receive you. Like, they reject me. Not everybody's going to receive you. So you've just got to understand. They, in fact, may drag you before courts. You may be beaten. You may go to death for my sake. And he's kind of like, well, that's kind of a hard word, Jesus. Like, thanks for the heads up. And they're kind of worried about what they're going to say. Like, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? This fear of the unknown. And, and Jesus says to them, like, don't worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. And so many of us, because we're planners, and we talked about this a little bit last week, because we need to have everything lined out, we can't just walk in and keep in step with the Spirit and just allow God to speak through us. And, and part of that unknown is just us getting out of the way so that God can be God. Getting out of the way so that God can use us. So many times we look at our, ourselves and we make excuses uh, about, about um, our time, and like, oh, I've got to move on. We're so self-consumed, but this fear of the unknown is, is, is I think we, at some point, our, our desire to do it um, has to become greater um, than our desire to pass on, and our desire to keep our schedules, and to keep uh, status quo. Um, so that, that fear, I think, is present too, or just our self-involvement. How is this going to work out? How is this going to affect my time and my schedule? Uh, any other excuse we might bring. Uh, not only fear of, of the appearance and fear of the unknown, but I think fear of the hurting. This, this is a weird one, but I think the more I talk about it, the more you'll understand exactly what I'm talking about. You ever gotten a, a phone call from a friend who's really hurting? Um, or, or you found out of uh, someone's loved one that passed away, and they, they call you and like, hey, or this is the funeral, and like, or, or come to the hospital, and like our first reaction is like, I want to help you, but like I don't want to go near that. Have you ever had that before? Like, where you, like, you get the call about uh, a funeral, and like, I don't want to go there because I don't know what they're going to say to me, and I don't know how I'm going to say that. I don't know how I'm going to process. I think there's the compassion part of us that wants to be there, but there's this natural side of us that says, I can't handle that. Like, I, I, I don't know what to say to them. I don't know what they're going to say to me. I mean, I, I, as a pastor, like, I, I have counseling sessions with folks that have gone through things I've never gone through, and like, you know, so, sometimes it's like, hey, man, just be easier to say, hey, I, I can't meet or whatever. But it, it's allowing them to process those things. And, and what we get, again, so self-consumed, so, so fear of the unknown, I think we really get afraid of people that are really hurting. And it's not about us kind of having some kind of quick fix, but it's about us slowing down. It's about us listening and being present with them. 
Most of the time, your words, <laughs> your words don't do anything, but your presence speaks volumes. You know, your, your words don't resonate, but the, the hand on their leg or around their shoulder or the hug is really all they needed. The look in your eye, that's all they need. And so the fear of the hurting, I think we've got to begin to eliminate that and let this compassion, this pity that Jesus has shown to us really flow into others. The fear of the, the hurting. And I would just ask this, what, what, about, what about the fear of the Lord? Talk about these onlookers, and we talk about uh, the f- you know, fear of the unknown, of how this is going to affect me, and this, this self-consumed kind of idea. And, and we talk a, a, about you know, these other people, that how are they, what are they going to say? But at the end of the day, like, what's, what's God going to say about us? What's God going to say about how we, we operate and how we slow down and how we, how we cross to the other side of the road? What would God say? The fear of the, the Lord is described in, in Proverbs uh, chapter 9, verse 10, I think. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. It's the beginning of all wisdom. And I love what First John uh, says, and it kind of would seem to kind of cancel out what's said here, but I think it actually provides illumination to it. First John uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 18, that uh, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So how does that play in with the fear of the Lord? Well, here's what I would say. I think the ultimate fear of the Lord is complete surrender and complete honor to the authority and supremacy of who God is. It's complete surrender and complete adoration of God like you are the highest. And I think in our lives as humans, like we just continue to raise and as we get a new glimpse of who God is, we continue to raise the level of how amazing God is, and that he would invite us into relationship. And so I think it's this ultimate place of honor, and, and, uh, but I think perfect love, casting out fear, is where perfect love and the ultimate fear of God connect and meet and become the same thing, yet the emotion of love overcomes the emotion of fear, where fear being a negative connotation and love being a positive connotation, and that we actually, we don't operate because we're scared of what God's going to do to us. I don't, I don't now do what God's taught me to do because I'm scared he's going to strike me dead. But I operate because I'm so in love with this God that I so revered honor and that he's invited me into relationship. I'm now doing it out of love. And I think there's a, there's a connection between these two ideas that's infinitely powerful and deep to understand and more time than I have to get into. Um, but I, I think we've got to begin to ask ourselves this question. What is God going to say? I'm so worried about what everybody else is going to say. God wants to set me free from that. I'm so worried about how this is going to impact my schedule and mess things up. So worried about what they're going to say and how I'm not going to be able to handle it. But at the end of the day, are we driven by what God says, what he calls us, and what he does to us? So let's go back in here and pick up at at the text um, talking uh, about the Samaritan. And and I want to dig back into this for just a second. Uh, Back just to the text for just a second. On, um, on the Samaritan, I believe it's 34, maybe. He, um, yeah, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put uh, the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn, took care of him. Let's finish this out, and then we'll jump to that slide. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these uh, three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of, of robbers? 
so n- now you can throw that. And I want to look at it for just a second about the meaning in, in this. And I think, though, at first, uh, again, everything is very altruistic and about us being the Samaritan, right? It's us not being the religious folk who just cr- cross on the other side of the road. But it's, it's about us being the Samaritan. But really, the first layer that we must get, that we must embrace and what, what we must understand before we go into this altruism and like, oh, we're going to be good and we're going to go be here for good and do all these great things for God. Before we get that, we need to understand that it's not others who are the naked, beat up, and broken and alone on the side of the road, yet it is us in this story. And the Samaritan is not us, but the Samaritan is first Jesus. I think there's a second meaning that we're exploring in this, but I think the biggest and most powerful meaning is that Jesus is the, the Samaritan who finds us in our brokenness as humans and finds us beat up and that the enemy seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. And that is what has happened to us. But God rescues us and he finds us and he bandages our wounds. Uh, Speaking of the healing that God desires to do inside of us, before we can do anything for him, he wants to do something inside of us in that healing that he desires. Oil is always representative of his Holy Spirit that wants to walk with us, that wants to clean out the wound. Um, and then wine always have the blood of Jesus. The, the inn would simplify the, the, the safety and the shelter and the peace of God that he brings us by taking us into a place, carrying, him, carrying us on his own donkey in a humble way. And then two denarii, I, I think could even, I've never heard this commentated on before, could mean the two nights, it's two days wage, and so it could speak of Jesus going to the tomb for two days and returning, could, could speak to that. Jesus is the Samaritan that stops for us when we're so busy doing things on our own, consuming our own world, Jesus is the one that stops. The Samaritan in the story is probably a traitor moving from, from Jerusalem to Jericho that would go back and forth. It's a despised occupation. They despised Jesus. That's why he would be carrying oil and wine anyway, talking about maybe the trade and the exchange that, that Jesus does for us. There's, it's such a deep parable that Jesus is bringing. We could just keep, you know, pulling truths from it. But more than anything, I want us to grab a hold of that first before we go out, and we're going to be that Samaritan. We've got to understand that we are the ones on the side of the road, that God wants to heal that God wants to comfort and bring along and put in shape, uh, safety and shelter and the peace of God and the healing of God. And so if you're really focused on everybody else and not focused on the one who stops for you, the one who slows down and made a way for us, then we'll never really understand and really be able to embrace the life that he's called us to. Jesus ends this with kind of throwing the question back in his lap. Who do you think was the, the neighbor to the man? He's like, well, the one who had mercy. And he says the same thing he said before, go and do. So there is a command to go and live out. And I think there's just, just, just to kind of recap what God's speaking to us this morning. I think first, it, it's, it's more than about a story and, and just this honor-shame thing. I think it's about the life that God has called us to. It's about the life that God has for us to go and do and live to live in his presence, to live uh, inspired by his love. It's about the love that he's called us to, and that he's given us, this incredible love from God. 
and, and really beginning to understand that part of loving him is also about loving them. I, I love what uh, Jesus says in Matthew 25 when uh, he, he's saying, you know, anytime you've, you know, given a, a drink of water, you've, you've given clothes to someone, you've done it as if you've done to me. And, and, and the disciples are like, what do you mean, Jesus? We never saw you naked. We never saw you hungry. And he's like, anytime you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. I love that kind of idea that part of loving him is, is loving them. And finally, just that this isn't, it's not only about those two things, but it's about the people that God's called us to, that God has strategically placed every single one of our steps. And we might be missing many people on a daily basis that are naked and that are half dead and that are broken and are alone and they look like they've got it all together, but on a daily basis, God has strategically placed your steps and so I think we've got to begin to open our eyes to A, what he's done to us. The brokenness that, that we find in ourselves and that he meets us and heals us. And then the people and the life that he's called us to all around us. I found this awesome video that I think will illustrate this point um, and bring it home for us a little bit this morning.
it's something that's a lot more real than what we expect. And I think this just can resonate within us about the stories that uh, I believe uh, we're going to encounter um, this week. And uh, I just ask you to, to stand with me in this moment and um, just ask what God might want to, to do in your life this week, what he might want to do with you in this moment, what he might want to open up your heart and your mind to what he's come to.